2: streaming, and 3CR digital, podcast, or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever!
0: Good morning, everybody. This is... Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got an action-packed program for you. <laughs> and uh, it's a nice day today, except uh, there's a bit of rain, which it doesn't make it a bad day. It makes it a probably a good day. And uh, we're going to kick off with a, uh, a discussion about uh, Crib Point, uh, Western Port Bay, and AGL that has been sprung trying to change or dilute the uh, Victorian environmental laws in order to get its polluting uh, gas terminal uh, set up in Western Port and we've got Jono Lanoise from uh, Environment Victoria to have a chat with us about what's going on out there. G'day Jono, how are you?
3: I'm not bad Annie, good morning.
0: Good morning, very nice of you to get up and speak to me this morning.
3: We've oh, been... look, uh, you're doing the hard work there in the studio. At least I'm at home with a cup of
0: tea. <laughs> well, uh, we've been, on Solidarity Breakfast, we've been following this particular uh, stuff that's been going on in Western Port and we hadn't caught up yet with uh, the events that have been unfolding there. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, we're, this is our environment, even though we're on the other side of the city. But Western Port is our environment, isn't it?
3: Indeed. Um, Western Port, it's a... It's a... Beautiful bay. It's a place uh, of you know recreation and holiday making for a lot of Melburnians. For those of us not lucky enough to actually live on its its edge, and uh, it's also you know a source of seafood and provides ecosystem services that help a lot of the uh, local fresh food producers that are Melburnians eat.
0: Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of Ramsar listed wetlands around there?
3: Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, it's a very large bay. There's a lot of different ecosystems down there. Overall, it's recognised by UNESCO as a biosphere, and it's also recognised under the Ramsar Treaty uh, for its wetland systems. Very significant. There's about 270 square kilometres of intertidal mudflats that provide really important foraging resources for shorebirds, and waterbirds. It's um, it's actually one of the most important shorebird sites in Victoria, and it's good, it's important to know that shorebirds are really under pressure around their range in the state and around the country. Um, it's it it also you know the, right at the the other end of the, the scale, it it uh, gets visited by southern right whales and humpback whales. Uh, there's a lot of dolphins in the bay, all of which uh, don't like large ships swimming. Uh, by uh passing pipe there there are at risk of collision with large ships which is an issue with this proposal and as I was saying it, it's waters that also support uh you know productive uh, fisheries so for example there are mussel producers down there uh, that are quite concerned about AGL's proposal because of, as we we might go into, the, the impacts on the water quality and the marine life uh, potentially go up the food chain and impact food production for us.
0: Well, yeah, you preempted me. That was exactly where I was going to go. Can you uh, give us an idea of what AGL is uh, attempting to do?
3: Well, AGL want to start importing gas to Victoria, which... You it's about. a bit
0: like coals to Newcastle, you say
3: <laughs> exactly Australia is the biggest liquid natural gas exporter in the world so right we now, now that's, that's
0: important th- for people to realize that we have surpassed uh, uh, the previous front runner
3: indeed um a couple of years ago, so most of that's going out through the port of Gladstone in queensland um but there's also Uh, WA and so forth but all along the eastern seaboard we're connected up by pipelines so even though Victoria itself (coughs) pardon me is not sending gas directly offshore um, our gas during the summer months uh, actually travels up to New South Wales and Queensland And so as a state we're a net exporter, we send about a third of our gas interstate and as a country we're a, um, a massive exporter Now, AGL, uh, for strange reasons, uh, want to bring in an additional supply into Victoria and, for even stranger reasons, want to bring it in through the worst possible location, which would be Western Port. And I say it's a terrible location. I I, I would say that you shouldn't be doing this anywhere in the world. Um, But just to to give you an idea of what they're proposing, to ship gas around the world, you actually have to... You have to liquefy it, which means taking it down to minus 161 degrees. Now, uh, if you're at all concerned about climate change, which should be just about every person in this country, that itself burns a whole lot of energy to get it that cold. And then once you ship it around the world, which burns a whole lot more energy, um, and you get it down here to Victoria, if that's what AGL, AGL get their way... You have to warm it back up again before it's any use, before you can put it in the pipelines. So AGL want to build this enormous uh, regasification unit there uh, and use 450 million litres a day of seawater from the bay to warm it up in a sort of heat exchange process, you know, kind of the, the opposite of what goes on in the, re- the radiator of your car, if you like, because the ocean water is far warmer than the, the, the liquid gas. They use it as a heat exchange, but that 450 million litres of water, first of all, it's got lots of marine life in it, and AGL doesn't want that marine life getting sucked into their machines, so they kill it with chlorine. So this water ends up with toxic organochlorides and organobromides in it. Also, it ends up seven degrees warmer than the ocean they've got nowhere to go with that water. They want to put it just straight back into the bay,
2: seven
3: degrees colder and full of these toxins, 450 million litres a day, uh, which is really, really concerning for the whole uh, food chain in the bay. And that's just the first of the impacts of this terrible...
0: um, You you, you just described something that uh, is like all the hideous uh, past ways of looking at our environment as a way of enhancing... Economic value, equaling destruction.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's quite bizarre, it? and, and that's before you factor in the fact that this gas was probably fracked somewhere else in the world because we're, you know, the easy to reach gas supplies are running out. Then it's got to go through a dirty great pipeline they want to build through uh, prime agricultural land, and you know, it's always somebody's backyard that gets gets damaged for this before it gets to packing them and gets into our existing gas grid. So. It's terrible. Um, it's a really bad idea, uh, but they thought they'd sneak it past us. And so far, the community and, to our to their credit, our environmental watchdog, the EPA, seem to be uh, holding them back.
0: Well, that's very interesting because the EPA hasn't got a, has, hasn't got very many runs on the board at the moment, especially after the chemical fires out in uh, northern suburbs of Melbourne. So it's nice to see that it's actually uh, holding. the the line here, Uh, but you've actually discovered that uh, there's been, uh, AGL has been doing a rear guard action trying to weaken the EPA, the environmental laws.
3: Indeed. And look, we've got a long way to go uh, with the EPA, but as I'll step out um, the story, we discovered earlier this year, we did some sleuthing and uh, and ran this past our lawyers in the EPA, It turns out um, for 18 years there's been a prohibition on any new wastewater discharge into high conservation value waters in the state, including uh, and particularly Western Port. It's covered by a number of uh, conservation sort of overlays. So this regulation, which the EPA is responsible for administering, uh, says there is no to be no new wastewater discharges. And there haven't, we've checked with the EPA, there's been no exceptions to that rule in 18 years either.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. We should at least get a pat on the back for
3: that. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) But last year, the EPA was reviewing it for administrative reasons. They were combining two old regulations into one new one and adding some additional protections, all good stuff. Uh, But as part of the public submission process, AGL, it turns out, lobbied quite heavily to get that, uh that prohibition removed or watered down now this wasn't nobody was aware of this at the time except for the EPA it would have been extremely convenient for them because it appears that that would completely rule out this proposal. The EPA we've discovered to their credit said no we haven't changed that for eighteen years there's absolutely no reason we would uh, and they've kept the prohibition. What we've now done is we've gone to our lawyers at Environmental Justice Australia and said, well, is there a way around this? And they've looked quite thoroughly at the law and said, if the EPA sticks to its guns and applies the law, there is no way around this. They cannot put 450 million litres a day of toxic, uh, thermally polluting water into the bay. What, (laughs) What happens next is a really good question. AGL is a company that's used to getting its way. Uh, I'm sure they've got various ways that they're planning of putting pressure on the EPA and uh, Dick Wynn, the ultimate decision-maker here. So we've got a long way to go. But so far, so good, except for the fact that AGL tried to get a swift one.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's nice to know that uh, some of our instruments of uh, protection are actually working. It's a very nice thought that it's not just there to control people's uh, sense of safety rather than their actual safety. Now, the next thing is that some people would say... Yes, and I've seen this happen where people say, yes, this is a terrible thing that's going to happen to the environment, but our economic welfare is at stake. So, you know, we really need to sacrifice everything in order to do that. And one of the things people might say is that uh, gas has gone up in price outrageously and this might help. Is that true?
3: Yeah, look, um, I want to say something that that some people might find surprising coming out of the mouth of an environmentalist, but uh, the days of cheap, abundant, uh, reliable energy uh, have actually gone, but I I think we need to bring them back. The fact is uh, Australian households, Australian industry, we need cheap, abundant energy. It keeps people healthy. It keeps people in jobs. uh, It allows us to uh, enjoy the good things in life. But guess what? The only way those days are coming back are through renewables. Renewables, Australia has the best renewable resources in the world. You don't need fuel. There's abundant support sources of energy. Uh, and so that's the way we need to be going as quickly as possible. For For those people in, Australia, in Victoria who use gas to heat their homes, for those manufacturers who use uh, gas to produce industrial heat, the bad news is... Uh, and AGL have admitted this, no matter what they do, the days of cheap gas uh, are gone. This import terminal would, in fact, just hook us to international prices, uh, which are very expensive for gas. We, we're we not going to have cheap gas again in our future. And what we need to do, uh, and what the question for AGL is, is what are they doing to help their customers, be they manufacturers or households, either... Get off old inefficient gas appliances to new ones that are far more efficient where the, the least energy efficient country in the world, or even better what are they doing to help people actually electrify these days it's far more efficient to, to produce hot water, which is around which is where about forty percent of Victoria's domestic gas use goes uh, with either solar hot water or solar photovoltaics connected to a, uh, a heat pump, an electric heat pump? What are they doing to help manufacturers electrify their, heat, uh, their applications of heat, which the technology is there right now and it's far more cost-effective uh, if you're, uh, for example, in the business of for food manufacturing or pulp and paper manufacturing or dairy. What are they doing to, and what are the state government doing to assist people in moving to the new technology because gas is old technology. It's its used by date, here, it's dirty, it's polluting the planet and it's never going to be cheaper again.
0: How can people help to protect the Western Port Bay?
3: Look, this campaign is, is really heating up and it's heating up because people are outraged at how absurd this is and they don't want Western Port risked. The best way we're going to be... Uh, we're currently targeting AGL themselves as a company. Um uh we'll be uh hopefully handing over petitions to AGL's CEO, uh, Brett Redmond, uh, shortly. And we'll also be uh targeting him with emails and uh and so forth. The best way people can get involved, there's a whole lot of things that we'll be doing with people power, is just uh search for stop AGL's dirty gas plan and you'll come you'll That's come to pithy. the right page <laughs> stop agl's dirty gas plan uh, and you should come up with the environment victoria website uh that will ask you to sign our petition and tell us if you're an agl customer or shareholder and that way we've got your information we can get in touch with you because there's a whole lot of stuff planned that we'd love to have you involved in
0: thanks very much for talking to me today johnny
3: pleasure annie have a good day
2: Self for Justice launch and pedal out from 10 a.m. on Saturday, 4th of May on St. Kilda Beach, Bunarong Country. Manus, here we come! Bring your own flotation devices to pedal out or join a day's sail from St. Kilda to Sandringham. Wake up, wake up, 11 a.m. Original Nations Passport Ceremony, 12 p.m. Barbecue and yarn, 1 p.m. Music. 2 p.m. Lunch and Pedal Out. 3 to 4 p.m. More music? This event takes place on the stolen territory of Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty never ceded. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, 4th of May on St. Kilda Beach. For more information, go to sailforjustice.org. Sale number 4, justice.org. Sail for Justice is a Tricia supporter.
0: The world, that we love her. The world. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got somebody from Sale for Justice who's going to talk to us about this great event that's going on today. So uh, if you've got, a, you're at a loose end, then you probably should be going down to uh, St Kilda Beach, Foreshore, to uh, join the group that are beginning there. What, what's, what are you doing? Tell us all about what you're actually <laughs> doing <laughs>
1: Um, what we're we doing, lots of things. Yeah. Um, a major journey all the way to Manus Island. So we're starting here and we're going all the way along the, the coast on the east of this continent, um, stopping in a lot of different places, um, organising actions, events and meeting up with different communities along the way who struggle for First Nations sovereignty, Um, climate justice, environmental stuff, and obviously talking a lot about um, the Australian border regime and the situation that people are in, and Manus and Nauru in detention prisons here and really all over the place.
0: People are pretty uh, impressed by this direct action. It's a uh, quite an extraordinary thing to do. So you guys have been—I uh, mean—and I, I hold the sea with in deep respect, having been brought up by the sea. Uh, so, what what preparations have people been making to prepare themselves for uh, this long journey? It's not that long, though, is it?
1: Um, we we are. Uh Aiming to reach our destination Manus towards the end of July.
0: Mm. Oh, wow! Um, That's right. It's a long time.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a long time. Lots of lots of preparations happening. So the, the Tila consists of a few boats. Um, yeah, we've been doing lots and lots of work on the boats, getting them ready, getting all of the equipment together. Um, yeah, people getting all the skills necessary. Yes, um, to to do what we've got to do, yeah, um, yeah and heaps and heaps of events, um, heaps of fundraising, yeah, it's been pretty busy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I bet you it has. And so you've got a couple of uh, core boats, and then you're asking, uh, and you and as you go up the coast, I guess you'll get people who come to meet you.
1: Yeah, so we're picking up those boats along the coast because people are starting from. A number of different places, um, and we'll see. We'll see if we can pick up even more. <laughs> um, yeah, if we convince people to come with us. But we're already um, a few, a few different boats, starting in different spots.
0: Now, the uh, you're going to it's going to go. You're, you're going to try and reach Manus by uh, July, and we're at the beginning of May. Uh, so, uh, you're going to make your way up the coastline to the tip of uh, Australia, is that right? And then yes. you're going to do, how far is it from the top of Australia it, and the point, I suppose, to Manus? H- how far is that? Because we're quite close, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I don't actually know the exact distance to Manus. So, um, we're going past um, some different sp- uh, places in Papua New Guinea as well, there's, um, there's communities um, in the Pacific who do a lot of safe work that we're connecting with, um, people who are organising and struggling against deep seabed mining in some areas of Papua New Guinea. Um, so we're actually going to um, some islands and some different spots on the way to Manus. Um, yeah, I know that's from here. All the way there we 've got over three thousand nautical miles but i 'm not sure exactly from Gimou, um south of australia <laughs> I'll, but I'll but like you've, the... you
0: you 've opened up this whole other understanding because um it, it, what you 're really saying is that um, this is a first nations uh, uh, in uh, um, what do you call it uh, gre- uh, meeting together. To yeah. try and uh, 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 to to uh, create solidarity around the incursions, or the the taking over of their space, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we strongly believe that it's not a space for the colonial Australian government to be making decisions about who is and who isn't welcomed in this country, as well as just the the impact that it has. Um, you know, on on so many nations in this continent, um, as well as Australia's um, involvement in a lot of different places, such as Nauru, Papua New Guinea, um, and obviously um, West Papua as well, occupied by Indonesia. Um, And yeah, so there's there's just so many connections between um, the situation that people are in who are trying to seek asylum here in terms of that and the impact that the offshore detention has on local indigenous people in Papua New Guinea and in Nauru and so on. So, yeah, lots of these things are very, very, very connected. Um, and I guess we're trying to open a conversation about that as well.
0: Yeah, and so are we going to be able to connect with you guys as you make your process? Will you tell us what you're doing on your way?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, we'd love to yeah. keep
0: in contact with you to find out what you're going, what you're doing, Absolutely. and where you're going. Because
1: yeah, yeah, we'll um we'll have we'll have a satellite satellite phones and um, things like that, so that we can be ritual. So yeah, we're planning on uh, putting out podcasts, um, doing interviews, and yeah, definitely updating people about what's going on out in the ocean as well.
0: Yeah cuz uh it's quite amazing what you're doing and uh this will be a very big deal for you personally.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um it's pretty it's uh it's a pretty big pretty big um Situation for everyone, for yeah. Sure. yeah. And so and you, I think yeah. I think a lot of us have just been really, really busy. So it's slowly sinking in. <laughs>
0: yeah. Once you start sailing the sea, you'll be uh, pretty yeah. alert to what's going on. And yeah. so you want people to go down to uh, Saint Kilda, uh, the Gantan yeah. Gardens, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. So Katani Gardens in Saint Kilda will have a 10am start. Um, we'll have Uncle Kev, um, Uncle Kev, as i to got here, um, doing an Original Nations Passport Ceremony at 11. Then we'll have some speeches, some food, some music, and then launch of the boats and the kayaks and a paddle light. So people are welcome to bring their own um, rotation devices as well and join us on that. And we'll um, go to Sundringham today and then we'll keep on going. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much for telling us about what what you're doing. It's pretty amazing, I'll have to say. It is pretty amazing.
1: Thanks for thanks for having. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, you'll see uh, many people soon at ten am. We're just just about to get in the water. <laughs> you elemai, the one my oh boy in my head Dang you elemai, the one
2: This is Iri Lecker, you're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West, Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up One Talks.
0: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and I've been joined in the studio by uh, Marcus Harrington. How are you?
5: Yeah, good, thanks, Annie.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we're going to be talking about something pretty important. Uh, Last week, or April the 29th, came in the uh, labour hire laws in Victoria, and you were just saying, uh, Marcus, that actually what people were fighting for in relation to the labour laws were the same things that people were fighting in the shearer's strike, the monumental shearer's strike in the late uh, 19th century.
5: Yeah, in 1891, yeah. At, at this time, yeah, the Shearers, yeah, waged a huge uh, fight against contract labour in 1891, it was, uh, a strike that went on for months and months, and they were fighting against insecure work, 130 years later, and here we are, uh, still fighting that same fight. Yeah, exactly. And it's worth noting, out of the Shearers' strike uh, formed the Australian Labour Party. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's and, right. Yeah,
5: 130 years later, we're there. Once again, got that same struggle on our hands.
0: Yeah, it's actually uh, now that you say that, because I've been uh, following uh, through some of the issues that came out with the uh, Clary O'Shea, uh, the Clary O'Shea um, uh, um, commemoration of the big uh, strike action that was uh, came into force in 1969 when Clary O'Shea was put in jail over non-payment of a, a fine union fine uh which uh, brought down demolished the penal powers in the uh, arbitration commission um are uh, looking at that going back into history constantly reminds you that there, the fight has always been about the same things really
5: yeah on a day-to-day basis we have to have that same fight that same struggle and uh if we're not careful well we're going to lose the things that were hard fought and won in the
0: past. Well, you've got to keep focusing that's, on the ball, basically.
5: Yeah, that's right. We can yeah, never get complacent and uh, we owe it to those people in 1891, even the Clary O'Shea and the millions of people that stopped work that day. I mean, it shows that that's the only effective way to win things is well, by also, withdrawing your labour.
0: And also, it is an effective way of doing it. I mean, things do change. So, I mean, it might be the same fight, but uh, people do make advances. And so this uh, labour hire laws that have been brought in, why was it so important that they were they came in, Marcus?
5: Yeah, well, it's been a long campaign. I mean, I remember back in 2012 when we passed the original motion in a NUW delegates meeting and then speaking at Trades Order to the the ALP members, they were then in opposition in Victoria and the the union leaders to put our uh, claim forward. There needs to be uh, some sort of regulation and legislation to protect labour hire workers and to keep labour hire operators uh, in check. I mean, well, it is important because up until now you you need a licence to do anything else, to drive a car, to work in confined spaces, to sell alcohol. You could trade in human labour and there was no no legislation, there was no checks, no regulation. It was unregulated.
0: And, and the way it was working uh, was that uh, you had big companies, really well-known you know, household name companies, using a method where they were in, uh, using workers uh, at arm's length and no longer being responsible for the uh, human resource element of their companies.
5: Yeah, they, were, they Outsourcing. were hiding behind using labour hire companies and now no longer that's the case. Now the, the host company that engages in labour hire are also responsible. So they can no longer use the excuse that they don't know because those workers are employed by a third party. Now the host employer and that labour hire provider are responsible and subject to um, substantial fines if they if they break any of the, the laws, any of the occupational health and safety laws taxation laws i mean superannuation, superannuation laws superannuation all these things um, so award that, wages award wages another thing labor hire clearly brought in to undermine the hard fought wages and conditions of union members and and to break the union strength and to undermine condition wages and conditions one in enterprise agreements i mean the labor hire system is a clearly divisive system that pits worker against worker I mean, I've seen the horror stories about if workers don't meet the KPI, they don't get a shift the next day. You know, the, the people that work the hardest and fastest keep getting shifts. I mean, we've gone back to the days on the waterfront when the the workers would line up at the gate and the boss would, you know, say, you, 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 in, the rest of the workers would wait there for hours on end, waiting to get a start. Now it's all uh, workers waiting by a mobile phone, hour to hour. I mean, these workers, I mean don't have a life. I mean, there used to be some sort of you know mutual respect between employer and employee where workers would have secure jobs and they could be aspirational, they could save for a home. I mean, casual workers can't take loans because in insecure work, irregular pay, and I've seen and heard plenty of instances where it's a struggle for these labour hire workers to even get pay slips. So, I mean, the- and that's
0: of course entirely illegal. And uh, but every time uh, a worker goes to work, they shouldn't have to be uh, fighting for every uh, all the things that have already been fought for against somebody who supposedly you're in, you know who are uh, basically uh, in charge of the food that goes onto your table. It's a it's a very very. Um, uh, uh, Paris, you know, it's 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 quite um, uh, almost criminal behaviour, isn't it?
5: Oh, it is no doubt because yeah, it's been unregulated, unlicensed until now. Now we have there the the labour hire uh, authority in place with inspectors on the ground who have the authority to go into workplaces to to monitor workplaces, to uh, examine payroll records and documents, and have the power uh, to take civil action. There's other uh, they can cancel. So, so
0: there's a, now there's a protectorate. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, the inspectorate. The inspectorate, the, the Victorian uh, Labor High uh, Licensing mm. Authority, uh, led by um, Steve Dargavel from the AMWU.
0: Previously,
5: and previously to this, yeah. So the inspectorate now has the power. So it's all about protect. So, so
0: they've got. They're allowed. This is something that uh, unions used to be able to do, and it used to. Uh, scare the bejesus out of employers. They used to be look at their books to see if they had actually paid people correctly and and all their entitlements. And this was part of a method of being able to keep employers honest. This is something that have got has gone by the wayside. But now you're saying that this uh, is going to be something that uh, labour hire companies are going to have to uh, put up with. They're yeah. going to have to do this. Well, They're going to have to show yeah. their books.
5: Yeah, labour hire companies, their owners, and the host companies that use labour hire are now all on notice that they've got to abide by by the relevant legislation, by the enterprise agreement, because the new inspectorate has the power to issue infringement notice, place conditions on on the uh, on the companies, suspend licence, cancel licence, even uh, take civil action, and and there is big penalties for both individuals and companies that do flout the. Uh, flat the laws. It's a long time coming, but it it is a start.
0: Do you know how many people are going to be employed by this inspectorate?
5: I'm not too sure about that. No, that's right.
0: Well, that's something that we have to keep an eye on. Are they going to have enough muscle to be able to do the job? Now, the next thing is that uh, I noticed that the amount of uh, licensing fees, each of these companies have to have, uh, they've got um, until... uh, the end of the year to apply for a license, or what is it? Oh, yeah,
5: they've got six months. Six months to, to apply.
0: apply, and they can, uh, the licensing fee will be between 1560 to $7,687, $7, which doesn't seem like a huge amount of money for a company, right? So uh, that's an interesting fact in itself, really, isn't it? that it's, you know, a relatively low amount of money to be licensed to run a labour hire company.
5: Well, it is, but hopefully one of the positives, it'll keep rogue operators well, that's out, what it's of for. The, out of the system. I mean, at the moment, well, prior to this week, people could, yeah, have a computer, set up a labour hire company, yeah. put a notice on Facebook and recruit workers and then get in contact with other, uh, yeah, workplaces and yeah, uh, yeah, it'll, the, weed, it'll weed those, uh, those sort of operators, the, backyard operators out. Yeah, yeah, and no, leave, that's what it's for. Uh, yeah, labour hire companies that are going to do the right thing there because of the penalties. I mean, individuals can be fined $120,000 for non-compliance and corp- companies and corporations can be fined up to in excess of uh, half a million dollars.
0: And potentially it might be able to reduce the problems that we're hearing that are coming out of cl- for cleaners. People who have been working for a company doing a particular job, they get... Uh, um, another company puts forward a um, tender for the contract mm. and they, at a lower rate, then the company says, oh, yes, okay, we will take your lower tender. But they use the same workers. The same workers then have to go on a six-months um, six months, um you know what is it uh, to see if they're okay? Probation mm. period—that's the word they use. Even though they've been cleaning the same joint for a yeah. certain amount of time, they have to cut. The, they c- get have to get a lower lo- lower hourly rate, and also in order for the company to actually um, be able to do a lower tender, is that they cut the workers' pay and they reduce the amount of people doing the job.
5: Yeah, that's what they do. They're doing the same job. They're just changing in that your instance. I don't they, know how, yeah. how
0: this system's going to help that, that. But perhaps it will.
5: Well, that's another point. We need to this. The laws need to go even further because, like you say, they change their company. They change the shirt. They're doing the same job. They change it from ABC to the next day XYZ. XYZ. <laughs> and their length of service goes back to zero. Yeah. I mean, I've seen instances where people are working twenty years in the one place, but they. Every three or four years, when the tender comes yeah. up, they change labour hire companies. This is what where it's we need to con. see uh, the portability of long service leave across the board, where there's a scheme and a fund set up, where they have to the companies have to should have to pay that long service. I mean, every I must week. say
0: honestly, it's the only, um, one of the major reasons why people should be joining unions, because it is impossible for individual workers to be able to uh, protect their their rates of pay and uh, fight battles like this individually. It's impossible. You have to do it in concert with other people.
5: Oh, you, you've got to join your union because there's strength in numbers and it's its the only way we win. Yeah. That's when we're at our best, when we uh, stand united and, and take action. I mean, this is a big issue because nearly half the workers in this country are employed in insecure work. Um,
0: the greater uh, greatest amount of casualisation in the entire world in the OECD com- yeah. company, and a lot countries. of those
5: workers would be employed through these third party, yeah, labour hire um companies. Well, that's why
0: they that's why they've created. it. I mean, it, it goes hand in hand almost with franchising. The whole notion of franchising.
5: I mean, yeah, it was this labour hire caper was sold on the proviso of freedom and flexibility. Who, that's who's right? Who's who freedom, freedom and who's who's flexibility? flexibility. <laughs> it's, it's the boss's freedom and flexibility. Yeah. I mean, they can dare yeah, send workers home at a minute's notice, ring workers up and tell them to be at the work site at an hour's notice for two hours' work and all this sort of... Rubbish. I, I mean, there's no, no freedom or flexibility for workers. I mean, I it's mean that's funny. Of- you know,
0: I used to do work in the entertainment industry, and uh, in the eighties and nineties, and uh, I I saw the signs. I was thinking, oh, look, everybody wants to have exactly the same non conditions as people who work in the entertainment industry, <laughs> <laughs> which was because the biggest uh, fight that they had uh, was uh, and won was uh, that you ha- if you got a call out, you had to be called paid for three hours. You know, you have yeah. to. If you're going to get a call out, then you can't just be, you know, there for half an hour or and get paid for half an hour. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah. Therefore, the laws need to go further to well make it more expensive for companies to hire, well, labour hire workers to make them have to pay into this scheme for long service leave, and then things things may start to change.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then you know, all this, uh, it may be actually possible for people to actually have a decent lo- a living. Standard.
5: Well, it goes back, yeah, to people being able to live a decent life, and to and have a right to it. That's People right. have
0: a right to a decent life.
5: That's right. We should be able to, yeah, live to work and not live to stand by our mobile phones, <laughs> uh, waiting <laughs> exactly. for a phone call. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. so this
0: is a, this is a step forward. I mean, these labor hire laws is a step forward, and it's quite interesting to note, like you said, you can remember. When uh, it all started for you at the NUW, um, uh, you know, a delegates meeting?
5: Yeah, and that was back in 2012. So it's been a long campaign. Uh, I remember, yeah, meeting with ministers from the ALP. They were in opposition then. They Yeah, they made it an election promise. Um, but I mean, they're good laws that have come in, but this Labor hire laws and industrial manslaughter, they're Two laws that should never have been used as election promises. I mean, they,
0: they should they just have, They
5: written. should have came in. I mean, yeah, both yeah. goes back to, to wage theft basically, and the, the, the industrial man's sort of matter of life and death. But two pieces of legislation which are critical and are, are going to yeah shape the way forward. But we yeah still need to go a long long way further with this uh, labour hire legislation. I mean. There's also, yeah, uh, on the website, the Labor Hire Licensing Authority website, where exploited workers, Labor Hire workers with a problem can report a problem uh, confidentially, or there is a hotline that workers can phone. So, I mean, we've got these resources, so yeah, workers need to take full advantage of it, and uh, hopefully we will see change.
0: Thanks for coming in and talking to us, Marcus. Thanks, Annie.
6: Solidarity Briggy, Team listener when, hang on, listener, sorry, I won't be long. I'm just trying to find a third possibility. I'm, I'm sure you're doing the same thing. And do let me know if you come up with an answer. But I, I can't see anyone other than scuttle them or little Billy and their lots being the government. God, it's, a, it's, it's depressing, isn't it? Well, why don't they give us a choice? Still, it's led to some pretty rare actions like the Lord Rupert of Sin election page's headline Wednesday, Labor Slams PM. Gee, go on. That's news. Wednesday, of course, was May Day, and the Whopping Sin delivered its annual and highly predictable coverage. Well, almost, and for that I must apologise to Lord Rupert to the Whopping Sin, which I was predicting would ignore May Day altogether with such pressing critical news like upcoming top of the range fashions, which did get an important and informative coverage. People racing a steam train and similar world shattering. But to Lord Rupert's credit, um, its credit, Lord Rupert celebrated May Day with an editorial attacking the Firefighters Union, backing up a sensation, sensation news story attacking the Firefighters Union. And sure, May Day didn't get a direct mention, but Lord Rupert knew astute readers could just look at the top of each page to see May 1, a giveaway Generally, the only uh, information on each page we can guarantee is the truth, with Lord Rupert obviously rejecting the temptation to utilise a euphemism like April 30 plus a one. So Lord Rupert, accept the week that was his apologies. And watch out for the saturation coverage of tomorrow's March. Getting into the spirit of May Day, that working-class hero devoting his life to his class, the aforementioned Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, whose commitment, as we mentioned last week, to the evil unions which formed the Socialist Party to provide a worker and union voice in the parliamentary process, is proceeding apace, promising the caring business class he would give it the tools to have profitable, productive, successful enterprises, and he would not be beholden to the evil unions. Let's hope the caring employers don't fall for that three-card trick we said, because little Billy would never sell out the unions and workers. But good to see little Billy this week getting into the spirit of the International Workers' Day by promising to pick up the wages bill for child care caring employers. And the socialists say they won't rule out paying the wages for workers in other, mainly female, low-paid occupations. The public purse picking up their wage bill is one invaluable tool to have profitable, productive, successful enterprises. What a clever way to shore up the caring employer's vote who may have feared that rather than picking up their wages bill, the socialists might have supported the greedy, avaricious, evil unions in seeking wage, wage increases, wait for, it, wait for it, paid by those workers' caring employers, wasting money that could be reinvested profitably to generate even more jobs, the very raison d'etre of caring employers who so care for their lazy, avaricious workers, they too got into the May Day celebrations, pointing out that little Billy's promise to restore the penalty rates taken from workers by Scuttle, them and the team, would destroy the delicate flower that is the economy. Remember when the penalty rates were removed, caring employers and the government and the fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it, Commission assured us, the impact on workers' wages would be minimal. They'd hardly notice. And the caring employers who had said penalty rates made life impossible, they were better off not even opening, could caring employ lots more workers and pay those workers lots more, an equation we had a bit of trouble comprehending, but they know what they're doing, we wouldn't doubt their word. Well, the True Retailers' Profits Association, in its deeply sincere concern over Little Billy's rash promise, warned wages bills would increase by up to 21% if the lost penalty rates were restored. But, but surely that doesn't mean the minimal impact for workers they'd hardly notice was a 21% decrease in wages. Surely must be some magical mathematical calculation that has minimal impact in one direction and maximum impact in the other. We also commented last week as the also aforementioned big supremo scuttleman Maul Lashson displayed his soft, compassionate side. Well, he would argue it's both sides and center. It's the real love thy neighbor, dear baby Jesus, him. Anyway, displayed as he shed tears over the slaughter of Sri Lankan Christians, that perhaps he could shed a few over those fleeing persecution, mostly Tamils, he has sent back to the persecution or locked up for life in PNG or Nauru. Well, this week he has showed he is a man of compassion, cutting back, true was his immigration cap, to resounding applause from his party faithful. But, and here's the compassionate bit, cutting back immigration, he said, to help migrants. Those already here would be better off, he argued. I'm not sure of the logic, but perhaps the potential new ones who now won't get here wouldn't be around to take their jobs, because that's what migrants, and especially no-proper-papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people migrants do. They take our jobs. The new figure, he said, includes the humanitarian intake. So clearly scuttle them, the soft, cuddly, compassionate, humanitarian scuttle them, regards the no proper papers lot, including those he returns to that they are fleeing as the a non-humanitarian non-intake. If only they could share his compassion and stop trying to embarrass both little Billy and him, claiming they're not treated all that well. Then there were a series of comments that don't really need comment, not that that will stop the week that was. For instance, aspiring Big Supremo, who sees himself as the answer to that question, is there a third possibility, Clive Gina said that Little Billy was not morally fit to be Big Supremo. But of course, if not morally fit is a criterion, we'd never have a Big Supremo. Given the one-notion creep who got sprung in the US odd seeking trillions from the Rifle Slaughter Association and filmed with a stripper while making misogynistic and racial remarks, will still be on the one-notion ticket, even though he's done the resignation thing, while expressing his deeply, deeply sincere sorrow uh, that he got sprung. We assume Clive will preference him high up on Clive's ticket because Clive must find him morally fit. Well... That lot all deserve each other. Clive, morally fit, the man running a multi-million election campaign with his workers' wages and entitlements. Speaking of morally fit, of the products emerging from the government pork factory in the past year, 272 million of infrastructure handouts went to marginal government seats, while 54 million, one-fifth, went to marginal socialist seats all that shows of course is that there is obviously much more need in marginal government seats but perhaps they should think through some of the largesse, because 244 million almost a quarter of total government spending in this area went to indy held by an independent who won it off one of our former favorites sophie Mora obelikos because surely these smart voters will say this shows it pays to have an independent but back to those comments that don't need the it'd be funny if it wasn't so serious award of the week to us of the un of the us of the world secretary for us of world state mike pompeo or else for accusing russia of interfering in venezuela no no we can't match that with a comment mike your it'd be funny if it wasn't so serious award of the week is on its way mike did say This is our hemisphere, the hegemonic master of the universal hemisphere, and it would show the depths to which the Russians, for instance, would be prepared to sink if they made some puerile retort like, Ukraine, this is our hemisphere. That would make Mike and his commander-in-chief Donald or the poor very righteously angry indeed, proving evil Russia has no grasp of what universal hemisphere means. The U.S. Ob is also involved in Most Gracious Majesty's home country, attempting to extradite that evil Julian Assange to punish him for the heinous crime of exposing U.S. Ob war crimes, which aren't war crimes because the U.S. Ob doesn't commit war crimes, it just does a hell of a lot of collateral damage. Assange serving 50 weeks for breaking bail, and given the maximum was 52 weeks, we must congratulate Her Honour for her compassion although he'll remain locked up for the year or two or three the extradition proceedings drag on but the u.s i've made a very strong case we want to execute him uh, uh sorry wrong page uh, here we are we, we want to execute the extradition order meanwhile as the deep political philosophy that is the stuff of the election campaigns absorbs our minds Minds which sadly can't come up with a third solution, possibility, scuttle them's lot have dredged up an eco- economist who says little Billy's renewable energy target will also destroy the delicate flower that is the economy. That quite simply we can't afford to save the planet, but it's not all bad news. The planet will fry to death with a very, very healthy economy. On the election excitement, our autumnal election hibernation, finally, the ABC yesterday said a number of listeners had rung in asking details of last night's gripping debate, which was on Lord Rupert's pay TV channel, guaranteeing a mass audience, with that channel's collection of totally neutral commentators. But I don't think that matters. I'm sure everyone was ringing up to ensure they didn't inadvertently turn it on. Good morning.
3: G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR. When
1: the sun goes down, take my armour and my shield Yeah, the night is a battle, loneliness, it's real Imagination is a tragedy, not knowing's a place called hell Black dogs are scratching at the door Cry, baby, cry, cry Baby, cry, cry Take myself to the lonely heart's theater Watching sad film all the time Sit down in the front row with me as yes, myself and I All together we have
0: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. What a cute song. That's from Vignette 2, Cry Baby.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, uh, it's actually by Jess Ribe- Ribeiro. Ribeiro. Ribero. Let's hope I got that correct. And uh, now we're going to go and uh, have a Venezuelan update with Fred. Fen- G'day, Fred. How are you?
3: Oh, good. Day. Hey, how's going?
0: Uh, can you uh, th- things are hotting up in Venezuela? Uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, since uh, you are part of uh, sort of a Venezuelan watch team, really, w- when it comes to Australia? Um, can you tell us what's going on there at the moment?
4: Yes, yeah, certainly. Look, uh, this this week was always going to you know be an interesting week in terms of what exactly was going to happen uh, in the lead up to this week. Uh, Juan Guaido the the president of the National Assembly who self-proclaimed himself as interim president of Venezuela on January 23, in what uh, many have viewed as essentially the, the start of a, a coup attempt to try to remove from power uh, Nicolas Maduro, who was elected in the election that occurred last May 20. had um, announced that May 1 was going to be a, a decisive day in what he had termed to be uh, Operation Freedom, and had said that May 1 was going to include the largest protests in, in venezuelan history and really be the beginning of the end for for the maduro government instead what happened was and which took a lot of people by surprise and of course it's very hard to get completely accurate information uh because of so much of the media disinformation that that has occurred um, but what we did see was on the on in venezuelan time on the morning of april 30 uh was an attempt or at least a the pretense to uh give a give an image of a military coup underway now in the media what was presented was uh juan guaido uh together with leopoldo Lopez who had been previously in jail or then under house arrest since twenty fourteen for his involvement in uh, violent protests that led to a number of deaths uh back back in uh, back in that time um He had obviously been escaped or released from from house arrest and they appeared and the media presented the two of them as being inside La Calota Military Air Base, which is a an airbase in the east of Caracas, and claiming that they had taken control of the military base and that other military bases were also about to turn uh, to supporting Guaido and Guaido calling on the people to come out onto the streets. Of course in the in the in the hours that ensured what, what what became evident was that this was a disinformation by the media and in fact what we had was uh, Guaido and, and Lopez, who were both from the same political party, uh, political, uh, sorry, popular will, uh, one of the more far-right parties on the Venezuelan political spectrum, had actually, together with somewhere between a dozen to a couple of dozen uh, soldiers, located themselves outside of the military base, um, had uh, had no, had very little other public support uh, from soldiers, whether that be in the La Carlota military base or whether that be at other military bases around venezuela uh, and that their sort of uh this sort of seditious act was essentially put down uh you know within a within a, a couple of hours uh, and, and and general general peace was restored in the country the following day may 1 when there was as i said before meant to be the the largest protest in venezuelan history in fact saw you know there a very small protest uh, a couple of thousand people coming out in support of guaidó um, we also saw over those two days, April 30 and May 1, uh, pro-government or, or pro-Chavista uh, rallies that had also occurred January on on April 30 outside the the presidential palace to Mila Flores in, in defence of Nicolas Maduro and on May 1 as part of the the traditional May Day celebrations, which saw quite a quite a sizeable march uh, in Caracas. Uh, of course, we'll we'll find out in the next days and weeks to come as to the real extent of. Uh, you know, sections of the military that were involved in this possible coup plot. As I said publicly, uh, it fizzled out very quickly. Um, only only something like a dozen to to maybe two three dozen soldiers uh, publicly involved in the act. Some of whom afterwards claimed they'd been tricked into participation. Uh, whether that's true or not is, is you know obviously is, is, is unclear. Uh, hasn't been confirmed one way or, or the other. But I I'd, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. Others who at least were in, in on the plan, but for one reason or another decided that they um, would not would not go ahead at the last minute and participate, particularly as a lot of this seemed as pretty rushed because, as I'd said at the start, that May 1 had really been talked about as being the, the key day and instead what we saw was really early on, on April 30, uh, this sort of stunt, stunt action occur outside the La Carlotta military airbase.
0: So it sounds like, uh, and you're completely correct, uh, our news here on the ABC and uh, SBS, uh, were reporting that uh, his press conference and then saying that there was going to be, uh, he was calling for a mass general strike. Now, that was after May the 1st that they uh, were airing that news, uh, which gave the impression that... Uh, we were expecting a general strike and I was still waiting to see what was going to happen. And so therefore the timing and uh, the uh, unreality of uh, news creation seems to be in force.
4: It, no, it's absolutely true that the media are far from playing uh, any serious role in, at minimum, just providing basic information. Like just factual um, stuff. That's right, factual information, and then and then perhaps trying to you know provide some real analysis. Really, has just become a, a mouthpiece for the opposition. And to use what you what you have just mentioned there, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, that's right. Juan Guaido has, um, subsequent to the failure of this sort of a, sort of a attempted military coup, or perhaps to call it an attempted military coup, maybe a bit strong. But as I said, we don't know exactly the extent of how much actual military support. Guaido did have for, for this action, but well, considering
0: it was outside the gates, not inside the gates, that might be a clue.
4: Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. And the fact that it all had to be rushed and and that it all, all pretty pretty much fell apart with, within a, within a couple of hours. Um, <coughs> excuse me, is a strong indication of, of of the the lack of support that that he had. Um, but subsequent to that, he, he said that the next the next stage of his operation, freedom, is is what you mentioned, is essentially a rolling strikes leading towards a. A general strike, and of course the media has just amplified this as this is what's going to happen. Uh, but what they don't mention is, and I can account for this because in, in, in March, when I was in Venezuela, Juan Guaido called for exactly the same thing. Um, none of it came came to fruition. Of course, in the media, it was it portrayed as this was going to happen. Uh, no information was given as to whether that did or didn't occur in Venezuela. It didn't occur, largely because um, Juan Guaido doesn't have a huge level of support, particularly amongst public sector workers, uh, which is where he was sort of directing his call um, for, for a general strike. And I've no doubt that over the next few days, we won't see, uh, we'll see little to, to nothing in terms of any strike action, but none of that will be really reported in the media. What will just be left is the idea that Flying Vidal had called for one, and many will probably believe that that's what occurred in, in those following days. But what, what, what the media refused to accept, or, or at least begin to uh, analyse, is why, why is it after so many different attempts and so many failed attempts uh, to get rid of, of, of the Maduro government, Why is it the opposition just isn't able to to galvanise the support it requires uh, to, to get rid of the Maduro government. And that's, the real answer to that is really that both the opposition and media refuse to accept a basic fact in, in Venezuelan politics, and that is the existence of Chavismo not as a government, uh, not as a, a state with an armed force, but as an actual political movement that, depending on which polls you believe, Represents anywhere from 25 to 35 percent of the population, who are solidly united in a kind of a political project of their vision uh, for Venezuela. Who see the attacks uh, every time that Trump uh, threatens to uh, attack their government, to remove their president, to impose a, a puppet regime as a direct attack on their sovereignty or a direct attack on on their right to participate in politics, on on, the, on their right to have uh, control over their their natural resources. And so, of course, every time that these these, uh, attempted coups happen, these attempts to undemocratically overthrow the the Maduro government, uh, this political movement is activated, comes out on the street, and it's a political movement that is active not just in the poor neighbourhoods of Caracas, but also strongly in the military as well. And that's why, um, you know, one one, uh, feels that within the military as well, there will no doubt be a strong discussion now about how how do we deal with uh, these elements that are are willing to go along with uh, the opposition's plans of, of... you know trying some kind of military action which I think would is a very dangerous path to take in Venezuela because it it, it really does threaten or open the doors towards a armed confrontation and and, and, and and perhaps even more more serious things such as a, a civil war in, in in that country.
0: well it uh, it reminds me of a couple of things. One of them is uh, the way uh, police, uh, English police, Australian police copying, and uh, American police try to kettle demonstrators into a uh confined area and uh you'd w- you sort of think to yourself how how can the majority of Venezuelans kettle these people into a confined area uh because they're in a delicate situation if i mean cuz you'd think that this man should be arrested effectively and put into jail but of course People like the Americans, uh, uh far right or centralist uh, Trump is, where Trump's wherever Trump sits, whatever self interested Trump sits, um, obviously believe that uh, if anything should happen to this individual, then that would be a green light to whatever plans they have.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that, <coughs> excuse me, that's that's absolutely true, but. There's a a real real debate and even more so now uh after these most recent events about exactly how to deal with um not not just Juan Guaido but, but all of those who have been participating uh in, in you know what 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 in any other country uh would have been reported at in, in the media as, as a as, a, as a, an attempted coup. Um but of course instead in in, in, in most of the media is portrayed as a, a struggle for democracy. Um many have been asking well why isn't Juan Guaido uh, in, in jail it should be noted that he is currently being investigated, um, so while he, he is in jail or hasn 't been uh, found guilty of any crime, he is currently being investi- investigated for for his role in in these sort of uh, seditious acts
0: because it 's treason
4: well th- well that 's right, and in particular when we start talking about uh, the, his involvement with uh military soldiers over the last few days um, and what we do know is that, as i said we don 't know the extent but there 's no doubt that the sort of um, links that they have inside the military go extend certainly further than just those that appeared publicly on on, on that day. We already know at least that the head of Sabin, uh, which is the sort of the military intelligence unit, um, basically fled the country. Uh, was rumoured to have fled the country on the day of the coup. Uh, many believe that that was because he his, his involvement in the in the coup plot had been discovered, uh, and so rather than Face face the, the charges of treason. He 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 left the country, and and we don't know who else may have also been in in, in that similar boat, and whether been, their role has been exposed yet or not. But yeah, you know, many many are demanding. Well, why why aren't these people being tried for treason? Why aren't these people being tried for the, the kind of crimes that, that they've committed? And and of course, the difficulty is is that Venezuela understands that every action that they take is it has not just an effect uh, within Venezuela, but also internationally. And as you've said. Uh, the U.S. Uh, government has made it very clear that for them, uh, the question of, of Juan Guaido is a, is a bit of a red line. And anything that happens to, to Juan Guaido would certainly uh, they would view as a pretext for a further escalating uh, uh, their actions in, in Venezuela. In a context where they've continually uh, repeated that uh, mil- military action is, is, is on the table, that it's, it's, it's and not, not perhaps not their preferred option, but certainly not an option that they're willing to, to rule out. So this is, of course, a something that the Venezuelan government has to, to take in, 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 into consideration and is made harder for them by the fact that it's not just the US, but also even governments like Australia as well, who are, you know, even with these most recent events this week, uh, coming out and reaffirming their support for, for Juan Guaido. And it's almost impossible to imagine, any, 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 and again, any, any other place in the world where uh, the Australian government uh, would come out to support a political force uh, involved in... Uh, Attempted to, to carry out a, a, a military coup and refer to them as being a peaceful democratic elements uh, rather than, you know, really, really, really what they are, which is, you know, a, 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 gr- a group of uh, uh, people trying to seek power through, through undemocratic means, including through, through violence and military coups.
0: It's, uh, I must say that uh, it makes me very angry. Personally, it makes me really angry that uh, uh, Venezuela, Venezuelans' people, aren't allowed to have the government that they have chosen. That's basically what's been said. And you think to yourself that uh, uh, the, it, it makes democracy a sham if uh, authoritarian uh, governments can just decide uh, and get everybody else on board to decide that this, co- this country is just not allowed to be so.
4: Yes, that's right. It's, it's, it's sort of uh, the U.S. kind of uh, sending the message to the world and, and, you know, it's done this in other countries as well, of, of basically, uh, you know, the, the democracy is only democracy if the person that I want to win wins. Um, otherwise, it's, it's, it's called authoritarianism. So uh, we, we're told that uh, Maduro is an illegitimate president, uh, but when no, no evidence is given as to why uh, his election last year in May 20th, it was an illegitimate election, certainly uh, in comparison to, say, the elections in Brazil where we had the, the previously elected president, Dilma Rousseff, who was removed unconstitutionally in a parliamentary coup. Uh, she was from the Workers' Party, the Workers' Party preferred candidate for those elections. Uh, Lula da Silva, uh, who was in all the polls indicating was going to win, uh, was put in jail, jail. Uh, yeah. and stopped stopped from being able to run. And instead, what we have is a, a far-right fascist in, in, in power in Brazil, in, the, in, in Jair Bolsonaro, uh, but no one, no one questioned those elections. No one says that those are illegitimate, or no one says that they w- don't don't respect the results of those. And and instead say that Lula is is the president. Um, but yet when it comes to to Venezuela, because it was Nicolas Maduro who won the elections, uh, we're we're told that he's illegitimate and therefore he he can't be the president. And uh, and Juan Guaido, who has never stood for a presidential election, uh, has never even put his hand up to be a a, a candidate for the primaries for presidential election who prior to January 23 was hardly known by most Venezuelans, uh, has just been, you know, has handpicked himself, because I think this is an important thing to note as well, that even when, when Juan Guaido self-appointed himself as interim president on, on January 23, in the in the days leading up to that, and there had been a, quite a public debate within the opposition as to what to do, because they had already said that they would reject Maduro's presidency. But that will, of course, open the question as to well, who, what, what should happen with the presidency. And the majority and, and the largest opposition parties um, said that, well, what we should seek to do is to establish some kind of transitional government uh, involving both sides of politics that can lead towards new elections. Uh, but rather than going through that and, and always framed within the Constitution, rather than doing that, Juan Guaido and his far-right radical party, the popular will, decided that they would use the opportunity of him being the National Assembly president to just self-appoint himself, even in opposition, to what the majority of opposition parties wanted, let alone, of course, what the majority of people who had voted in the May 20 elections wanted before. So this is the kind of undemocratic actions that leads to Juan Guaido becoming interim president. Uh, He claims to have done it in the name of the Constitution, in the name of Article 233, that says in the absence of any uh, president prior to... Uh, the presidential inauguration, that the president of the National Assembly assumes power, but Article 233 is very clear. They have 30 days to call elections. That was in January 23. We're now in May, and Huang Guaido has never spoken about holding elections up until, up until uh, including up, up until today. Uh, so even himself, even if we were to take his word for for his presidency being constitutional, has already broken the one thing the Constitution demands of him, which is to have called new elections. Uh, with, within within those those thirty days, but again, none of that is repeated in in the media. None of that is repeated, for instance, in the statement this 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 week by the Australian government when they once again reaffirmed their support for Guaido as interim president, supposedly on the pretext of that being constitutional, without any answering any of the question about well, how can it be constitutional if the constitution only allows for a thirty day period of in, of interim presidency? Uh, none, none of these questions are, are, are really asked in the media. Instead, we're all we're, you know we're just sort of told to. To go along with, with you know, as, uh, what is you know becoming every day more more blatant and clear is is a, 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 an attempt by a minority sector of, of society uh, to undemocratically take take power, regardless of then what one may or may not think of the Maduro government itself.
0: It's, it's quite interesting this uh, it, the thing about the media because. Uh uh as, as far back as about a year ago, SBS, what was it, um, their foreign affairs program, you know, uh, i forgotten what it's called, uh, a character went there and went to Venezuela and did a completely anti-government report mm-hmm. sp- and did interviews with people and stuff like that. And there was absolutely no doubt after watching that program that uh, uh, Venezuela was... Uh, being destroyed by this uh, incompetent leftist uh, government, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I remember thinking at the time, uh, isn't that incredible considering uh, all these other reports that I hear about what's going on in Venezuela and people go there and they meet people and there's this whole thing happening in Venezuela. And it was all... Uh, and uh, it, th- that whole idea that... Uh, Everybody, everybody in the mainstream media across the world is in lockstep regarding Venezuela and being anti the government is, I think, is absolutely incredible. It really puts all the reports that the uh, news put, news puts out into doubt for me.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And the, <clears throat> the media just refuse to really, as I said, uh, one's not asking them to... To take a, a position of being, you know, anti-Guaido or, or pro-Maduro, but really, it's just about trying to report the realities of, of what's going on. So, for instance, uh, we we constantly hear reports about the very serious situation uh, in Venezuela, the very serious economic situation. It's certainly one that I can attest to, having been there just a, a couple of months ago. But the, the very, you know, very extreme hardship that ordinary Venezuelans have to go through um, day by day uh, in order to be able to uh, you know, based on the uh, you know because of the the impacts of the hyperinflation having basically pulverised people's wages to to be able to you know get together the money necessary to be able to buy the the foods and, and medicines that, that that they need. But uh, what's then never really you know said? There's just this sort of leap that's taken from this very deep economic crisis to just it's what's all the fault of of the government, and very little attention is paid to, for instance, the impact of sanctions that the u.s government is, has been imposing on venezuela so just this week <coughs> excuse me, this week or last week um the an important uh think tank in the united states the center for economic policy and research uh released a report uh by mark two economists mark weisbrot and, and and jeffrey sachs so jeffrey sachs who's you know, played a big role in sort of previous you know, liberal governments he's far from being a left-wing economist you know i'm sure he's got huge differences in regards to what the um, what the maduro government has done in terms of its economic policies um, but they did a, a serious report looking at the, the impacts of the sanctions particularly the sanctions that came in into, in, into action in, in august 2017 that had a, a dire impact on on that as well as oil production which of course is the key source of revenue for for the government to be able to import foods and medicines And very, you know, very methodically they've come to the the calculation that the sanctions have been responsible for, were responsible for the deaths of approximately 40,000 people uh, last year in in Venezuela. Mm. And that seems to me to be newsworthy of of reporting, whether the news then wants to debunk it or not. But that just gets ignored. Um, Those those kind of figures, that kind of reality, just never even gets mentioned uh, as part of, you know, trying to explain what's really going on. Uh, in Venezuela, and of course, then the report outlines I mean, you can't just look at the deaths, but you've got to look at the people, for instance, who uh, are unable to get treatment um, for for things like HIV, uh, <clears throat> unable to get the insulin that they need uh, for for, for um, diabetes, uh, all these other you know sort of life threatening sort of uh, situations that people are being put in as a result of the sanctions. And instead, we're we're just pre- pre- uh, presented the, these sanctions as being. Uh, you know, I just simply directed at the government are they're having no impact on on ordinary on ordinary Venezuelan people, when the reality is that the sanctions are impacting by far the most on the poorest of of, of, Ven- of, of the Venezuelan people. And, and by any definition of international law, um, our criminal sanctions are uh, illegal sanctions that are collectively punishing the people, uh, and, and are things that should should be, should be being denounced and, and opposed. Uh, and, and very minimum, the media should be looking at at, at what is occurring. But instead, what, as you said. We get We get basically these sort of proper, you know cheap cheap propaganda um, from outlets like ABC and, and SBS, and I, I recall that i think if I'm thinking of the, the same one, I think it was the one that was on uh, foreign correspondent that's
0: it foreign um, correspondent yeah
4: yeah yeah where the, where the journalists claim that oh, because it's so dangerous for journalists to go into to, to Venezuela here to go in undercover
2: yeah
0: it's very that, weird.
4: Well, of course, all of that was exposed by the simple fact Well, he'd already been to Venezuela before to have already done a documentary. So a simple Google search would have come up with his name and would mm. have, if the Venezuelan government really wanted to expel him. They could have found out pretty easily. But and what he also admitted was he basically he, he, he went to Venezuela and operated illegally as a journalist because in any country in the world, if you go as a journalist, you have to register, you have to apply for a particular visa. You can't just yeah go into yeah. other countries and practice journalism uh without that he he never did that he never approached and the Venezuelan embassy came out and made a public statement of course of which a b c did not did not broadcast at all for no, no, did not respond to, to say well look this guy never he says that he he was in danger but he he never even asked for for permission and how does he know what we would have responded um yeah. So it's all just a setting up a cheap anyway, propaganda
2: for, yeah. for anyone who then has to. We goes. have to
0: finish now, Fred, and, uh, okay. and it's quite clear that this is a watching brief and we'll be watching to see what happens in Venezuela. Thanks very much for spending time with us, talking oh, no, to that's us. the opportunity. Yeah. So. We literally have to finish now. Uh, Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. We were just uh, talking to Fred Fuentes about uh, what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, This is Solidarity Breakfast. We're going to finish with uh, Mia Dyson, Precious Thing. Mm